Hi there, this is Kaisen, and you're listening to the Handful of Leaves podcast, where we bring you practical Buddhist wisdom for a happier life. Today's episode is really interesting. We are going to speak with Sister Mei, who is a clinical psychologist, about how our parents' relationship influences our very own romantic relationship, and also our outlook on love, on marriage, life, how it influences the way we respond and react to situations around us. All of this has very much to do with our experiences as a child. Some people would have a very positive outlook on love, while others can be downright skeptical and even vouch to stay single for life. And some couples quarrel a lot out of jealousy, fear of abandonment, anxiety, while others seem to communicate pretty well to make each other feel supported, to feel loved. So what really makes the difference between all these relationships? Now, we first have to look at how we are being shaped by our parents in terms of how we define love and then try to unlearn certain habitual behaviors that we've picked up since we were a child. And all of this is what Sister May is going to help us to unpack. And she's very generous in sharing her own personal experiences dealing with her husband, dealing with her ex before she got married, as well as her mother-in-law, whom she's now caring for. She also shared a couple of examples from working with her clients in order to help us understand certain concepts, especially the part about identifying what is the underlying cause of all these emotions, seeing things as they are in order to sustain a healthier relationship. We will be talking about multi-generational baggages, about attachment styles, how do we navigate situations when we have very different styles from our partner, and how do we communicate well and iron out those differences. Whether you're single, in a relationship, or you're already married, this episode, you're going to learn something from it. If you were to pay close attention to the contents of the discussion, I really hope you enjoy the episode and learn lots from it. Without further ado, let's dive right in. Hi, Sister May. We have Hello. today Cheryl and myself chatting with you. Hi. Hello. Thank you for inviting me. <laughs> it's our pleasure. Sister May, I know that you are very active in the Buddhist scene, giving a lot of talks and your day job, you're a senior clinical psychologist and you teach people how to parent well. I don't think I do your <laughs> job justice, so I think it's better for you to share with our listeners just very briefly what do you do and what you're passionate about. Thank you, Kai Sing. I'm a senior clinical psychologist. I am more like a part-time <laughs> clinicians now. I'm also a caregiver for my mother-in-law who is having some stroke and dementia concern. In my work, my so-called special expertise is guiding parents into mindful parenting. So I incorporate mindfulness in my work. And of course, I do see youth, young adults and all that. So whenever they come with concerns, I always have that family at the back of my mind on how they are being brought up or how they are being shaped in terms of how they see things and experience things. You mentioned yeah. something interesting, like how our parents change the way we see things. Can, can you give a couple of examples and what are some of the common scenarios? I think a very simple example is 
our way of doing things, perhaps say cleanliness. Some people <laughs> are not particular about it because the parents are not really this so much. Perhaps they emphasize on their academic work and whatnot. So in terms of personal cleanliness or hygiene, they may not be paying so much attention. In terms of relationship, like in a single parent family, perhaps um, the child is in a relationship, they tend to be very careful in terms of relating themselves to the partner because they really want to severe that relationship. And some become very conscious. They are very alert about how the partner relates to them and all that. So what they have experienced in terms of their upbringing that transpired to their relationship. I think particularly in romantic relationships because the dynamics that we see from our parents is the first time we witness love between two people. So I remember having this conversation with my friend. A little bit of background, my parents always fight, always quarrel. There's not a day where you don't hear like shouting with each other. Mm -hmm. So I have a rather pessimistic view on relationships or long-term love. So I told my friend, I think relationships is meant to be a short-term thing. If you get together with a person and you don't feel like the person kind of contributes it makes sense for you to go your own ways but my friend who grew up in a relationship where their parents modeled a lot of loving behavior even till their 60s 70s they're still saying like i love you very much dear things like that and he had a very optimistic view of relationship he was saying love is possible to go all the way to the end it's the most beautiful thing in the world (laughs) and things like that so i found that very surprising because before talking to him i didn't realize that people could have that kind of view where mm. a loving relationship is possible after 40, 30 years of marriage. Yeah, so mm. it's just crazy how much how much our parents can affect our view. And when you're giving the example of the single parent kind of dynamics and the children sometimes being very careful with their partner because it's the love that they don't want to lose, I a thought yeah. that came up to me was like, can an apple really fall very far from the tree? Like, are we able to really not take after the mistakes of our parents and build something positive if all we have seen was negative modeling? Of course, you know, like people have the ability to change. They learn and then they change. It requires the intention to shift the dynamic to a ideal one or to a better one. So, I always believe that people have ability to change. In a family, you have a parent who maybe model not so pleasant experience for their child. But among the children who grew up in the same family, you will see some repeated the parents' marriage pattern, some not, you know. So what, what is the difference then? Is how one pick up or learned new things from their exposure. So like you said, how you see your friend, you know, their parents are so much loving and all that, it opens your perspective. That's how you be nourished and you know that, hey, there's possibility. There's possibilities of a, a different model of relationship. Mm-hmm. So that gives hopes and also opportunities or possibilities to shape a more optimistic relationship. That's very interesting. And just now you also mentioned that a person, if they go through single parenting kind of experience, they would kind of look at their scenario or situation very differently, cherishing their relationship versus being too careful or very avoidant. You mentioned Mm. 
having more exposure to broaden the view. And you also mentioned something about being deliberate. Can you share a little bit more on how we can be more aware mm. of how this affects us? Yeah, definitely. This just reminded me about a client. She's in a relationship now in her 20s after graduate from university in a new career. But uh, she experienced domestic violence in the family between her, her parents and her father was absent all the time. And she's the youngest in the family. So she witnessed her siblings' relationship and their marriage as well. For her to step into this relationship, she realized that she clings to her boyfriend so much that she said that her happiness is almost come from her boyfriend. So there was one occasion that the boyfriend did not reply or did not attend her birthday day. It's supposed to have a celebration, but he had an emergency and was out of contact. So she was very depressed, you know. She wanted to break up and whatnot. She came for a session, and of course, the process about all this, right? And one thing that helped her to understand how her previous experience or her witnessings of her brothers and sisters' marriage have already taught her, like, if the partner is not attending to her immediately or responding fast enough, there's something wrong, you know? So when there's something wrong, her immediate survival mode is to run away, is to get up from this. Hence, she reacted very strongly to this. Her boyfriend is a police. Police need to attend to emergency and they have to keep secret at times then, right? So that's the context of the situation where she felt that she cannot spend time with this boyfriend any longer because he cannot be there consistently for her. So... Uh, her distorted thinking about a relationship to have a boyfriend to be there for her 24-7 is because of how she has been distorted before in her young childhood time and also her uh, witnessings about her brothers and sister marriage that they are not able to communicate well. So she needs a lot of communication. She needs consistent communication to help her to feel secure, to feel safe. So I have to really help her to recognize that uh, there's a lot of what we call injury, you know, the wound, yeah, the attachment wound. It really takes a lot of trial and test and error <laughs> to help her to understand what is the normal attachment or normal relationship look like. So there is always give and takes in certain situations. She de deliberately want to have a good relationship. That's for sure. We can see that, right? But her distorted perspective about the relationship is something that needs to be done. And also, she needs to have time to repair the attachment wound that she has experienced for such a long time. Mm -hmm. Can you maybe share a little bit more about attachment wound? Well, attachment is the first basic trust that we built since when we are born into this world you know like from zero to two years old this is where we learn how to trust the outer world as a baby you know we have no ability to take care of ourselves we have to rely on our caregivers so whenever we cry are we given immediate or are we given the responses that is caring enough for us to feel safe and secure and some of the time when our parents are not responded immediately, we keep crying. As a baby, we keep crying, you know, until we receive. 
So some of the baby they learn that they have to cry hard to get attention. Maybe learn to cry harder because when they cry harder, their caregiver responded. Have some of the children they use their way to manipulate so that they can say, for example, do a lot of things to make other people happy so that their needs are fulfilled. So this attachment wound. Happen to certain level to each of us, including you and me here. I wouldn't say that there is no one without attachment wound, but how do we heal from this attachment wound? Is that from the way when we are growing up, how we build relationship with other people, and then how we are being responded by the outside world? It will help us to repair, or some people they further injured. From inside, it reinforces the belief that is unhelpful when the interactions with people become negative. Correct. Yeah. So this is very much the interpersonal process of building trust and also a worldview. I'm just very curious. Do you have any attachment wounds that you are open to share? How has it affected your past relationships, or how do you see it show up in your current marriage? Um. Okay. I do have two relationship before my current <laughs> marriage. I think the second relationship is the one that I felt very, very much hurtful <laughs> to say that,、um, but also a very important lesson that I learned about myself and how I step into marriage is also because from that relationship I really learned more about what is called moderately good. Relationship, of course. In every relationship, we hope that this is our last relationship, right? I don't know about youth nowadays, but for a person who want a serious relationship, we always wanted that relationship to be the last one. So, what happened in that relationship? The relationship was actually not approved by the ex boyfriend's family, so we have to break up because of that. At one time, I'm very resentful, you know. That how come on one hand that both of us are so much in love, but on the other hand that we have to submit to our parents. We always say that love is between two person, and、uh, what I learned from that is that the parents is also part of our relationship, although they are not directly involved. But <laughs> we carry them behind, you know, our shoulder when we come to the relationship. So what I can see is that when I was thrown into such a disapproved relationship, my instinct is I want to rebel. I want to prove to you that you're wrong, <laughs> that you didn't choose me, that you are wrong. <laughs> you know that kind of、uh, ego, yeah. So this is what my mother is, you know. My mother always like, you know, I'm not going to bend down to you. Yeah, you look down on me or whatnot. I will even strive to do the best. Yeah, I'm a fighter, you know. My mom too. So I really realized that, you know, how my mom fight with my father. <laughs> so in my Current marriage, I'm living with my parents-in-law. I do appreciate this part because I know a lot of youth nowadays. Perhaps if they marry, they will choose not to live with their parents-in-law. But I can see that when I'm living with my parents-in-law, I can understand my husband much much better, and I can empathize his situations. Somehow he also appreciate me more because I. Appreciate his parents by taking care of them and whatnot. So I guess it's a give and take. <laughs>
in my relationship. So while I'm learning how to rebel reasonably, I also learn to respect more. I think this is an important lesson that I learned. And now currently I'm in the marriage. I am applying what didn't happen in my parents' relationship. Now is happening in my own. Thanks for sharing. So, if I can put what you have shared in clear steps, it almost seems like we need to first be aware of our behaviors and then investigate, because uh, behaviors usually have some form of hidden expectations, right? And then we reevaluate what are the causes. Is it caused by our parents? How does it translate to our current relationship? And then we rebuild and repair. And I'm thinking, at which point in the journey did you? become aware that there is this cause and effect? Is it when you feel really angry or do you have to be deliberate in reflecting all the time even when things are peaceful and calm? How can we build healthier relationships through whatever we have just discussed? Mm. Um, of course, when you are in the mud, you need to learn how to survive or maybe to stand still uh, and to really look what else you know, can be different, can be done differently. I would say that actually I learn a lot when I'm actually in the challenges. Those situations or those challenges from day to day basis can be a small thing like I didn't reply messages or forgetting something or do a big thing like perhaps a sickness or a trauma. I find that when I was thrown to challenges, especially like the romantic relationship challenges, I really needed a lot of space to talk, to express my feelings, my thinking. I was lucky that I had my friend at that time. And time to look back at myself, what is actually happening, because I was pointing fingers. It's very hard for me to reflect on my own self when I was hurt, I was thinking I was hurt. I was injured by another person. That was my younger self. What I'm learning now is that when I'm able to practice meditations or mindfulness more often, I find myself to really be at peace to look at my own struggles from within rather than pointing finger out. For example, now that I'm taking care of my mother-in-law, <laughs> has a lot of pain, has a lot of difficulties. She cannot move easily and whatnot. So every time when I move her and all that, she will scold and she will shout. So every day I have to really practice patience and also <laughs> acceptance of who she is. So when I'm more mindful, I will always say that is she making my task more difficult? But when I'm able to be more mindful, I can see that this is what she is because she is in so much of pain, so much of discomfort, and I'm the only person that she can express her anger, she can express her frustration. So she scold not because of me. It took a long time, keep reflecting on this, to realize that the anger that I had is actually me, myself, that is holding on to my expectation, how she should behave, how she should be appreciating my effort and all that. So I realized that, wow, okay, that's me who is the I, the mind, the self that is being polluted or being tainted by my own expectations, which added more struggles to me to connect with my mother-in-law. So this realization only come 
quite recently, I would say. Mm. <laughs> Although I've been practicing for a few years and all that. This is a breakthrough, man. So I really see that daily practice is important. We might not be getting there so easily, but every little effort make, however small is it, it still lead us to one step or maybe one baby step forward. I'm curious, how do you get that sense of expectation for reciprocity? And did that also strain your relationship with your husband, if it's not too personal to share? Because typically, mm. romantic relationship is affected by our parents as well, right? Yeah, definitely. My husband and my mother-in-law, they do not have a good relationship, but they still... <clears throat> somewhat in a cordial relationship. So many times I am the middle person. So I, I do have that righteous, like, why me? You know, like I'm the external person. <laughs> you know, I can say that very easily, <laughs> seeing that I'm the so-called the outsiders in the family. So this is where the me, the mind, the I <clears throat> come in that is so strong that is holding on this kind of boundaries that I am not supposed to be involved. Yeah. And I will also try to throw back so-called the responsibility back to him. Finger pointing and blaming. Yeah, right. The finger pointing again, come out. <laughs> I realize that when I'm not able to take care of myself, it happens when I'm burned out or when I'm overwhelmed with things, then of course it will burn my husband as well. <laughs> yeah. But I'm happy that when I complain and all that, I am given the cuddles that I need. I'm given the listening ear that I need from my husband. Even though he doesn't help much, but he is there to listen. Oh, okay, okay. I understand. Singular, singular. You know, that itself suits me a little bit so that I know I can continue. I'm not alone in that journey. Even though I expect him to help physically more, but I know that there are certain challenges between him and his mother. So what I can see here is that this kind of parent-child baggages, it really needs your courage, your intention to step into, to face it again so that you can reconcile slowly. I felt that it benefited me a lot to know that what is moderately good? Mm. <laughs> I do not have to be good, but moderately good. I think that's that's what is good enough. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. Moderately good is good enough. So I guess what, what we can say from that is that there's not going to be a perfect relationship be it with your partner or your partner's family. And as long as you are able to be content with what is going well, finding the goodness in what is going well, that would make it good enough. Is that right? Mm. The contentment comes from really, really understanding about the nature of things. The nature of things means that this how it is has been, they have been living in such a situation or things have been done in such a situation in this nature for a long time. When we are there, we, if we do not have enough of understanding we may not be content with such a situation. We want to change things. We want to have our way. We want to perhaps insert new things. So it really <laughs> takes a long time to get to understand and accept the nature of things as they are. That is really, really the contentment that you know that, ah, 
this is good enough. I think like as a Buddhist, right, I want to be very wary about this contentment as accepting it as good enough in a very resigned mm. way. You're just like, son <laughs> mm. I don't know how to translate. <laughs> Kaising help. Uh, forget it. Yes. <laughs> yeah, like, like forgetting the opposite of that would be, I think I deserve better. I should get more. I should do more. So it's very hard to balance and just tying it back to what you mentioned just now about attachment wounds, right? So everyone mm. hurts differently. Everyone has been conditioned differently. So how do you know you're doing yourself justice in the sense that uh, you're mm. fulfilling your needs as a result of your attachment wounds versus you're settling mm-hmm. for... Uh, settling for, for less? Not, not setting for less, but you're trying to not live with an unhelpful coping mechanism. Does it make sense? Mm. Um, how do we still have our own individuality while we are living as a couple or we are living as a, a family? Mm. So <laughs> this is where you really have to understand. Before we say that we can understand other people, we really have to understand our own self. How much do we accept ourselves? Improvement is not wrong, but this tendency of wanting something to be better always comes from a desire. And this desire is because most of the time we want to feel good and this desire will push us to do something. So we need to be aware about how we feel about things when we contact with certain things, how we how we feel about things before we trying to change things. And then this contact of things, these feelings come from where? It come from our consciousness. It come from our own past experience, right? So say, for example, yeah, whenever your mother not responding to you, you feel bad about it. So like now, if you are in a relationship, and you want to improve your relationship. And when your husband or your boyfriend or your partner didn't talk to you for a certain thing, then your past experience or your memory about that unpleasant feeling, unpleasant abandonment arise, then you do not like this, of course. You want to change this, right? So then you will try to talk a little bit more or maybe do different things to please him back or get him back to you. Like you cook a good food or good meal to get him back or you you dress better, you make up yourself, right? Is that right or wrong? There's no right or wrong. But do we aware that is that unpleasant past experience of this abandonment feeling that we keep blaming that, oh, you know, I do so much effort to you already, but you're still not responding to me. Is that something that you're not happy about or you're not content enough about me or whatnot? We'll point fingers again, right? <laughs> so we really have to have that understanding about this part. Well, of course, when you understand about this abandonment, it's very scary. And now that when you want to talk again, can we first suit ourselves knowing that hey, you know, it's okay, you know, to give some space to him and I can have the space to also um, work with my inner child a little bit more to know that I am worthy of this love. I don't need to rush to, to change anything. I just need to be patient or so be patient with my own self, give some times and 
I'll continue to do my own thing, but I'm also giving space for the person to come back to me. Of course, I will express because I also want him to connect with me. I will express that my need is I really want to talk to you again, but. I can also learn to self-suit myself that I do not need to keep worrying about whether he will come back to me or keep trying to do more so that he will come back to me. So I'm not sure if I'm answering <laughs> to what Cheryl has asked uh, directly. Correct me if I'm wrong, Cheryl. You, you answered uh, it in a very, very, very powerful way. I feel that what you essentially highlighted is that. A lot of times we focus on the momentum and the and the energy of frustration and anxiety, and we try to solve that, right? And sometimes it just the more you try to fix that, it it gets a little bit more rigid. But actually, you bring the awareness that we need to understand what is the narrative we are holding behind all these kind of emotions, and that will help us to be able to recognize what is actually really going on here, and to then turn around and soothe the The anxious little inner child inside that is actually calling for attention, or in a way, willing for some sort of attention. Kaising, do you have any thoughts? I think fear of abandonment. On the flip side, what if a person is avoidant? I, I kind of fit under that、mm. category. So when you put an avoidant person and a person who has the fear of abandonment, and you ask the question like, okay, I'll just wait for the person to come back. Wouldn't there be more friction, and how can we navigate those kind of situation?、Mm. Thanks for asking this question. That there's a different pattern of attachment. Actually, there are four pattern of attachment. If we will have to categorize it, this is between parent and child. Secure attachment. There is avoidant attachment. There is anxious. Attachment and there is what we call disorganized attachment style. So for a person who is more on the avoidant attachment style, when they have a concern, they may avoid it. Karami, if I'm wrong, Kaising, if I understand you correctly, when you have a conflict, perhaps you will tend to not wanting to talk about it, or you want to talk about it's, it. It's it's more how, of how like give me some space to process things first. I don't really want to tackle the、mm. issue head on. I'm not ready yet. Yeah, like say if my partner were to feel anxious, then it would be quite difficult to deal with, right? Just like talk to me, tell me what's wrong. <laughs> then how do you <laughs> reconcile? Because on one hand, I have my needs, like give me space. Then if my partner feels that the space creates anxiety, how can one navigate、mm. that situation? In situation like this, perhaps for the avoidant, he or she could learn to give a timeline. Because when you work with another person who is what we call the anxious attachment style, giving an expectations、mm-hmm. will be helpful to know that hey, I will come back to you. You know, give me two days to think about it. So this is also to help the person with avoidant attachment style to. Also learn how to face it because <laughs> maybe it is very hard to talk about issues for the avoidance style because they want to avoid unpleasant situation to handle conflict. It become very scary, you know.、Uh, so how to stay through the unpleasant feeling is what the avoidance style person can learn to stay there, not run away. You can. You can choose not to say anything, but 
to stay there, to not going away, just be present. Yeah, I think that's a, a big learning. It takes a lot of courage for the person to stay there. Yeah, that's very helpful. So it's about understanding, yes, I have my needs, but then also I can't run away forever and find a common ground. Yeah, that's helpful. And I'm mm. thinking to wrap up our chat. Do you have any practical daily practice that we can adopt to build stronger relationship? Is there a number of frequency or like how frequent we should check in with our partners or you know how frequent should we reflect on our behaviors and how that link to our relationship with our parents or our parents' relationship with each other? Yeah, any practical advice? Uh, for me, the practice of mindfulness to deepen your own self in terms of being able to stay still, whether or not you are in the challenges or whatnot, to learn how to stay still is very, very helpful. Uh, like you can have time to come back to your breathing in a day, just to really take a moment to be with your present breathing the present body sensations that's always very helpful in psychological term we name it as grounding because in day-to-day tasks there's so many things that happened conversations thoughts ideas and then problem solving issues and whatnot so it's very much up here you know the mind is always active and thinking and have to process information so to have a time to ground to come back to the body, to the sensations, to the body senses is very helpful so that we know that our hands still feels, our legs still touch, our tongue still tastes, you know, our nose still breathe well and all that. And of course, if there is also opportunity to reflect, say, for example, to really allow yourself have a space to be with the feeling, I know that a lot of youth, they will share that some of the time they say that, I don't know how I feel, I just feel blank, I just want to lie down, do nothing, I just felt like not doing anything. So (laughs) this is where the need to be with the feeling, to be with the emotions will arise when they are overwhelmed maybe, or when they finish one thing, they will have the emptiness, you know, empty kind of sensations it's actually not really empty if we really look into it maybe there's so much of feelings that you can't name even want it's a sense of loss perhaps sometimes so to have a time for us to write or to express expressing to friend or maybe to really write down about ourselves like hey you know how have you been doing or to have time to really be in touch with the nature and just sit there and be soaked by the wind, by the air, by the nature. That is to take care of our own feelings and our own senses so that we are not so lost. <laughs> we are not carried away by, by too many things in our life where we forget how to be in touch with our feelings, with our inner child. So... To have a space to express ourselves, whether or not it is being in touch with the nature, to write something, to draw something, 
or maybe to just sit down and you know meditate i think that is very important yeah just be just be it's interesting how you bring it back to ourselves when we stabilize our inner child meet our own needs and be able to self soothe then our relationship with our partners would be so much healthier because it's not like we're trying to fill a void or a form of lack and our behavior around them would also change because our needs are met then you know it becomes a lot happier to be around with the person and we can truly be present so shift my mindset a little bit thank you very much it all goes back to inner work and understanding the causes and condition yeah the, the person that we need to connect is ourselves yes. <laughs> before we can connect with another person definitely mm. yeah. to wrap it up thank you sister may for sharing a lot and we started from understanding how a lot of how we react is also because of our parents our upbringing the dynamics that we observe from them the the kind of interactions that we learn from them and of obviously the kind of exposures that we learn from our friends from the different kind of relationships we see modeled around us we also talk about really understanding what the root cause is in terms of your distress your frustration and really trying to understand that a, a lot of the kind of healing can happen from within and thanks so much for sharing all the practical ways that we could use mindfulness to help us to ground and and like you say just be Yeah, thank you so much for coming on to this episode. Thank you, thank you. Thank you for having me and sharing this interesting topic. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks listeners for staying till the end of the episode. If you have benefited from this, do share with a friend or leave us a five-star review wherever you are listening to this podcast. It really helps us to reach more people to make a difference. If you'd like us to cover any topic on this podcast, you can go to our Telegram, leave us a comment. Otherwise, till the next episode, may you stay happy and wise. <laughs>